What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. On this Monday, I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead this hour, it's an underlying theme that's going unnoticed. Stocks are gradually being sold by the old to the young. We'll explain how that's impacting the market. Plus, as oil continues to tread water at 40 bucks for months now, the industry is consolidating with another deal today. What it's telling us and who could be next. And the great pickup shortage, a strong debut for the iPhone 12, maybe. And J.P. Morgan says don't give up on Nikola. That's all ahead, but we start with the markets this hour. Dom Chu has that for us. Dom? All right, we've been on either side of the unchanged line so far. We'll call these markets very stable, Kelly. We've seen some fractional gains and losses. As you can see right here, just fractionally to the downside, about a quarter percent to the downside for the Dow, off 65 points. The S&P off about a third of a percent. Similar percentage moves for the Nasdaq Composite. Key level to watch here for the S&P 500, 3401 the 50-day average price of that index. And at the highs of the day, we were up 19 in the S&P and down 18 at the lows. So a good amount of symmetry with regard to the trading range so far today. A hot part of the market has been in for quite some time now, the cloud computing industry. This particular ETF, the Global X Cloud Computing ETF, ticker CLOU, has been a massive upside mover, really outperforming today, up another 1%. A record highs for this ETF. And again, since the pandemic lows, we're talking about a Roughly 116% gain here for this particular ETF. So remember, that pullback here was definitely bought in early September. We'll watch that cloud computing space. And then one other place to watch in terms of the stock overall, L Brands. Price target upgrade by analysts over J.P. Morgan. That stock, believe it or not, remember, it was given up for dead quite a long time ago, is up massively, 87% year-to-date, a mul- almost a multi-year high, almost a two-year high. But remember, it's for that kind of move here for L Brands. This is Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works. This is a stock that hasn't been really good for quite some time. It's getting a bid today, but remember, still very much off of its record highs from years ago. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you with a bright spot. Yep. Still one of the most surprising stories of 2020. Dom, thank you very much. Let's check on on things in Washington, where House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has put a 48-hour deadline on making a deal on the next round of COVID relief. She and the Treasury Secretary are expected to talk this afternoon. I'm almost afraid to even ask, but Elon Moy is here with the latest developments. Elon? Well, Kelly, they are still trying to nail down that language over testing. The White House had said that it agreed to Democrats' demands on this, but now Pelosi is criticizing the administration's plan as leaving out minority communities. There are still other potholes out there as well, including the child tax credit, state and local funding. The census is now even wrapped up into this. So even though both sides still say that they are hopeful and optimistic, the White House is now acknowledging that by negotiating with Pelosi, they risk losing their own party. I think it's important for the American people to see that uh, the president and Secretary Mnuchin and myself have not only uh, made modifications, but made substantial modifications that uh, come at the risk of of, uh, jeopardizing Republican support. 
So the Senate will hold two votes of its own this week. The first will be tomorrow on a standalone bill to extend the payroll protection program. Then on Wednesday, they'll vote on a $500 billion package of targeted relief. But Kelly, that nearly $1.9 trillion price tag that the White House is offering Democrats, Republicans are saying they're not buying it. Back over to you. Yeah, and that came after we got the budget gap figure on Friday. I'm sure that didn't help things, $3 trillion this year. But, you know, my real question is how much leverage does Speaker Pelosi have to impose a 48-hour deadline? Well, I think that what we've seen is that deadlines have come and gone with no action being made. So that deadline, I think she put it out on Saturday. That would put it at tonight, this mor tomorrow morning, to get something done. This was the deadline to get something done before the election. I think that even if there was an imminent breakthrough, it would be very hard to see action happening before November 3rd. Yep, that's for sure. Time is of the essence now. Elon, thank you very much. Elon Moy with the latest. Meanwhile, while Wall Street has one eye on Washington, the other is on the balance sheets of some of the nation's biggest companies right now. A busy week of earnings is ahead of us, kicking off today with eight Dow components, lots of airlines coming this week, and momentum winners like Netflix and Tesla. For more, let's welcome in David Leibovitz. He's global market strategist for J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and Doug Ramsey is chief investment officer for the Luthold Group. Great to see you both. David, I'll start with you. How big a deal is earnings? And what do you make of the market's moves overall today? I mean, here we have, you know, we're down 100 points now, uh, not a lot of uh, action on stimulus. We have earnings coming. We have better Chinese data. We had amazing home builder data this morning. What's the most important thing for the markets here? So I, I think in the very short term, the most important thing for the markets, uh, it, it starts with the letter P. It's all about policy. Um, there is a recognition that the momentum in the economic data is beginning to slow. Uh, and we need policy supports to keep this thing on track. And so I very much do view policy uh, as being in the driver's seat right now. But with earnings season kicking off, you know, we had the banks last week. And generally speaking, uh, things were a bit better than expected. We need to see that data continue to come through uh, on the upper end of the range. You know, surprises have been very strong, which is a tailwind for the market uh, over time. And so I think if the earnings come through strongly here, we may be able to buy ourselves a little bit more time. But we really need to see that policy lever get pulled uh, to keep this broader recovery on track. But, David, if that's the case, the one thing that just keeps coming to mind for me the last few weeks is that we're not seeing huge reactions in the stock market you know, to these stimulus talks. Yes, you see maybe a hundred, a couple hundred points here and there, but this is not a market that's acting like what's at stake for this package is anything like, you know, the 2008 TARP vote, for instance. And I think that that's a very fair point. And one of the things that we've found, particularly in the retail sales data, which is obviously so important given the U.S. economy is 70% is consumption, uh, the retail sales data over the past seven months has been highly correlated with income growth. And so effectively, you've seen these, these policy supports really come through and do what they're supposed to do. But we are getting a sense that that policy support is waning. I do, again, think that the economy is going to experience a pretty significant downshift here in the fourth quarter. Uh, and that could potentially force policymakers' hands. I mean, I'm a little bit skeptical that a deal gets done before the election, but I do think something could get done before the end of the year, again, particularly if the data begins to come right. under pressure, uh, which is very much our expectation. Doug, let me bring you in and throw kind of another headline at the markets. I know one that you care about or, or think is important for investors is the prospect of a Biden win or a blue wave. Uh, polls would say that looks, you know, at least the Biden win looks pretty likely at this point. And yet again, we've seen very little reaction in the market. Why do you think that is? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I, I still think, um, you know, deep down, just given the huge surprise in 2016, 
I'm not sure that a Biden win is really priced in. And the reason I say that is just looking at where valuations and sentiment are today. I mean, if Biden were to win and if the Senate were to flip over to the Democrats, I think there's a very real risk that uh, most, if not all, of that corporate tax uh, cut from a couple years ago would be rescinded. And I mean, that was really mm-hmm. all of the margin expansion you saw at the very end of the economic cycle. So I think it'd be negative. And from a liquidity perspective, I mean, it's almost like the Democrats are now the fiscally conservative party because they want to, either way, you're going to get crazy spending. Regardless of which party wins, the Democrats just want to pay for more of it. So that might pop this sort of free money illusion that investors are uh, seem to be suspended in right now. So I, I certainly don't think it's fully priced in the broad market. So let, let me just ask you about one sector in particular. I know you are recommending here healthcare. Um, you said the only holding you think would be vulnerable is biotech. Now, do you also mean in terms of an election result there? Uh, yeah, I think they'd be hit by both, you know, a Biden win and even even uh, more significantly, again, if the Senate were to flip. I mean, it's a group we've owned for a while. We've got good gains. We're not going to peel out of that group solely on our own handicapping in the election. But, you know, typically it's a group that also struggles regardless of who, who wins around election time and even for the, the next few months. But uh, our other holdings actually managed health care as a group whereby a political result gave us the opportunity 10 years ago. Obamacare. I mean, who would have guessed that managed health care would be a massive beneficiary of Obamacare, but it has been. And that's why we're we're looking for maybe like some, you know, not just anticipating into the election, but looking at price reaction after the results. Let's say if uh, some of the financial services, especially the banks, were to act well in response to a Biden victory. I mean, to me, that would be a tell that maybe that extremely cheap group is completely oversold and could be primed for uh, for better times in the years ahead. So it's, again, I, we're paying not just close attention to trends leading into the yeah. election, but also maybe something that has an odd response. I think that could be a tell as to what subsequent leadership will be. Yeah. And who would have ever thought electric vehicles would be going wild in the fourth year of a Trump administration? But here we are. So some counterintuitive points there, David or Doug. I'm sorry, both of you really appreciate it. We'll leave it there, guys. Doug Ramsey and David Leibowitz talking us through these markets this afternoon. Thank you. Let's stick with the markets for a moment. We've seen an uptick in recent stock fund outflows, but it's not necessarily the sign of bull market skepticism right now. It could actually be a matter of demographics. Mike Santoli is here to explain. Mike? Yeah, Kelly, in fact, net outflows from stock funds have been more the rule uh, than not over the last several years in all kinds of market sentiment backdrops. And part of that story does begin with older Americans in a structural way, long term, uh, are now becoming net sellers of stocks. And they own most of them. In fact, uh, baby boomers own about 53 percent of all household equity holdings right now, according to Goldman Sachs. Those older than that own another 17 percent. Millennials, uh, the biggest demographic group, own maybe three percent. So it's very, very split uh, right here. And I do think it's probably going to be accelerating because of some of those age issues. If you look at this selling uh, kind of undertow that's going to be with us for a little bit, uh, there's some mandatory uh, elements of this, too. If you have an IRA, you have to start taking withdrawals at age 
72. You know those target funds that are pegged to a particular retirement date? 40% of the assets in there are pegged between now and 2030. So this is all coming out of the market on a net basis. And the big question, I think, is exactly how we're going to absorb this and what it might do to the change in market character. Uh, you're going to be selling a lot of these blue-chip dividend-paying stocks right now. There's a new generation that really is engaged with the markets, but it's more on a trading basis. They want uh, kind of the stocks they know in terms of product uh, and not necessarily those that just uh, kind of have the, uh, the financials in there. And uh, part of this also, uh, I do think, is can help explain why we have this corporate social responsibility movement right now. Companies are already changing their behavior. And here you see, for those target date retirement funds, younger workers, millennials, are starting to take up some of that slack. This is in the first eight months of this year. They bought almost $16 billion on a net basis, whereas retirees, those who are kind of peeling back their equity allocations in those funds, sold more than $17 billion. So I don't think it's necessarily something that's going to swamp the whole market, but it's something to be mindful of, Kelly, over time. Yeah, it's changing the influence, the way companies behave. I thought they had a great debate on halftime last hour, too, about Bristol Myers and whether you can own it uh, if, if Robinhood right. uh, accounts don't. Mike, we appreciate it. All Thank right. you, sir. Sure. Michael Santoli. Quick programming note. Tomorrow is the CNBC FA Summit. You can join Jay Clayton, Mario Gabelli, and more to discover new ways to address the increasingly complex needs of clients. And the event has been approved for CFP continuing education credits. I watched my dad try to get those growing up every year. Anyway, visit cnbcevents.com slash FA Summit to learn more and register for the summit on October 20th. Still ahead here, ConocoPhillips is buying Concho as the energy patch struggles with the sector down 50% this year. We'll look at who could be next and why we could see a lot more deals ahead. Plus, one widely followed economist says don't expect any stimulus deal to the end of January. He'll tell us why and his reasons may surprise you. And America's great nationwide hunt for pickup trucks. It's all coming up on The Exchange. We're back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Big deal in the energy patch today as it reels from low oil prices. ConocoPhillips will buy Concho Resources in a nearly $10 billion all-stock deal. Uh, shares of Conoco down fractionally, Concho up fractionally. There could be a lot more of this to come. A recent Kansas City Fed survey found that more than half of energy firms predict a jump in deal activity as the future for oil gets bleaker. ConocoPhillips CEO Ryan Lance actually mentioned this instability as a reason for the Concho deal. We recognize it's going to go up, it's going to go down. OPEC, what does they do? What do the Russians do? What does the U.S. Uh, unconventional do? That's all a price signal. But what we've created here is something that can operate through the cycles and embrace the kind of volatility that we know is going to happen in this business, and it's completely unpredictable. Here to drill down on this deal and who might be next, Paul Sankey is Sankey Research Lead Analyst. Paul, it's good to see you. The last time we talked, I think we were debating how uh, negative oil prices could go. So obviously the environment's better in that regard. But what does today's deal tell you? How significant is it? 
Well, I think some of the clients are disappointed that we really have the best player, one of the best, say, let's say, certainly top five players in the Permian, an independent concho, selling for a relatively mild premium at you know levels that are, are obviously very depressed, both in terms of the oil market, uh, but also share prices. So, you know, I wouldn't say that everyone's thrilled that this is happening, but I think that the responsible people in the room believe that consolidation is the right move. And ultimately, these are two very good companies that are combining to make a better company, which ultimately is a positive. So I believe it's about a 15% premium. Is that right? And it's also interesting to see the muted share price reaction of both companies, probably the rest of the sector as well. Right. Um, why do you think Concho was willing to unload itself at only a 15% premium? And what does that tell us about the way the rest of the deals might look? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. Certainly, in fact, the 15% premium was before the deal was leaked, which happened essentially over the course of last week. So uh, the premium is ultimately around where everyone thought it would be, but not more. Um, so that's, you know, really the big question is, is why would Con Concho sell as exactly as you highlight? And there was some reference made by Tim Leach, the CEO of Concho, that essentially this new world that we're entering where you've got to run for cash return to shareholders, uh, you know, simply is too difficult for these independents to do because they have such high decline rates in their underlying production. He mentioned a 40% underlying corporate decline rate, believe it or not, in their oil production. So essentially they're forced to constantly reinvest very rapidly and that makes it very hard to generate cash return, dividends, etc., to shareholders. So that's really a fundamental problem. The history of the industry was that uh, you grew, you grew, you grew, and then you sold it to ConocoPhillips. So it kind of, you know, the strategy <laughs> kind of worked. The problem is that there's no appetite for big premiums anymore, and, and that's fundamentally pretty negative. So finally, what would you tell investors? What, what would your picks in the sector be right now? Well, there's a lot of interest around EOG. I mean, are they going to deal? There was even a really bad, poor rumor on Friday that's caused the late spike that maybe it was getting taken over. EOG, I always think, is actually the best company, but it has issues with federal lands. Uh, we like Pioneer, PXD, which has got the right strategy and thinks it can make it happen, this cash return strategy with low growth. Uh, those are two good Permian names. Uh, takeover potential with Parsley. Possibly Diamondback. But generally speaking, the Permian is a great place to invest. Uh, we just need to get oil demand, particularly jet fuel demand, back. And we think that the world will be surprised by how much oil we use and how difficult it is to replace in the balance. We're pro-replacing it, but we think yeah. it's going to be way harder than the Green New Deal suggests. Still, you want, I mean, the fact that Concho made this move now, you wonder, I mean, if they saw those brighter times around the corner, you know, why didn't they hang on? But, Paul, thanks very much for joining me today. We always like checking yes. in with you. Paul Sankey on the latest deal in the oil patch. Coming up, investors shrugged off the launch of the iPhone 12, but the latest pre-sales numbers for the new phone show that consumers are pretty eager to snag one. We'll have the full story ahead. And with people stuck at home and stores closed for months, online retailer StockX is seeing growth soar. We look at what people are buying, where the money's being made, and why you want to invest maybe in puzzles. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast. 
generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're checking on markets right now. We're near the session lows, not at them just uh, precisely, but the Dow's down 89 points. We're down about 130 at the lows and up 100 at the highs today. So a narrow range we have been all over the place, about a third to a fifth percent decline here across all the major averages. And in terms of the sectors, all 10 of them are also lower right now. Energy, which we just spoke about, industrials and materials are the biggest laggards today. Energy down nearly 1%. That big Concho Conoco deal not doing much to lift uh, prospects for the space right now. Let's check in on some of the individual movers. And we have RH moving lower after Jeffries initiated the stock with an underperform and a $320 price target. It's at 377 today. They see execution risk going forward for RH. They have difficulty justifying a market multiple on par with other luxury goods names. RH is down about 2%. But the airlines are flying higher with Hawaii and United leading the pack. TSA reporting today that it did screen more than a million people nationwide yesterday. The first time volume has been over a million passengers since the pandemic. You have shares of Hawaiian, which we'll talk about in a moment, up 5%, United up nearly that much as well. And finally, the solar ETF TAN is seeing another jump today, and a number of stocks are hitting all-time highs. Enphase, Jinko Solar, and Solar Edge. Talking about three ish percent gains, but Jinko's up nearly 10%. The whole sector is seen as a proxy for the Democrats' prospects next month. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. New and disturbing video evidence connected to the case involving five Michigan men accused of conspiring to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer have been released by state prosecutors. They say it shows the men using guns and conducting training drills as part of their preparations. A defense attorney for one of the suspects says the video only shows the men exercising their constitutional rights. A new study from Brown University citing asymptomatic transmission as a major contributing factor of COVID outbreaks in long-term facilities. The researchers found 40% of people who had the coronavirus in these facilities showed no symptoms, while another 20% did not show symptoms until after they had tested positive for the disease. CVS is hiring 15,000 employees nationwide as it gears up to tackle an expected influx in COVID and flu cases during the colder seasons. 10,000 will be registered pharmacy technicians. The expanded workforce will also come in handy when COVID vaccines are deemed safe and ready to be distributed. You are up to date, Kel. That's the news update. Back to you. We will take a hiring spree anywhere these days. Yep. Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera. As the pandemic has kept stores closed and people indoors, StockX has seen a boom. And I'm not talking about U.S. Steel. I'm talking about the digital platform where people exchange sneakers and other things. Frank Holland has the story for us. Frank? Right. 
Hey there, Kelly. You know, during the height of the pandemic in the month of July, StockX had its best month ever, and it may not be what a lot of people would think. Teen boys buying their favorite basketball shoes. According to StockX, women and buyers over the age of 45, those have been the growth drivers during the pandemic. As stores closed and in-person shopping ground to a halt this spring, consumers moved online. And one big beneficiary, secondary marketplace, StockX. We were surprised by what we saw as in, in May and in June and in July, again, unprecedented volumes in the platform. Valued at $1 billion, secondhand good seller StockX says global sales came in three times higher during the pandemic than the year before. Sneakers as a category has outperformed the market. Uh, when you look at the returns, if you were an investor in the asset class of sneakers, but we have other categories in, in, in the market. For example, puzzles as a category has grown 600%. For sellers like Vernon Sims, selling goods has become his full-time job. All the past couple of years, they'll do anywhere between two, three million in sales a year. Sims said when COVID first hit, he was worried about his livelihood. He feared with stores closed down, his supply would dry up fast. At first. It was a little scary because you didn't know what was going to happen. Um, you know, personal friends of mine had gotten laid off. They'd lost their jobs. But like a month after that, I had the biggest month I've ever had. The month after that was even bigger than that. I think we're seeing a little bit of the consumer reaction of you know, just wanting access to something that provides happiness and provides joy. And for many, is economic opportunity. Analysts estimate the global resale market, currently valued at $6 billion, could reach $30 billion by 2030. As the category expands, so does the demographics of users. Post-pandemic, we've seen uh, people over the age of 45 grow by 30%. That was a slice of the economy that now, with the digital divide being overcome and e-commerce growing, we even see growth in those types of consumers uh, on the platform, which is really exciting. And important to note, these are high-end sneakers that we're talking about. The average sneaker price here in the U.S., $60. The average price of a top-selling sneaker on StockX, $270. Kelly, back over to you. Wow. I, I went two to three million dollars in sales. I would love to know what he's pocketing from that because that's a, hu a huge number. That's awesome, um, huge. especially that his business wasn't hit harder, Frank. And I'm looking at shares of eBay as kind of a proxy for how StockX has probably done this year. eBay is up 50 four percent let's call it they've been a monster but i mean right. it's clear they view these guys as a threat they've just started saying ebay has that they'll start authenticating sneaker sales over a hundred dollars i mean wouldn't you say good luck with that Do you think they can kind of come back and take a piece of this market back you know i think it's actually even a bigger market than we might imagine uh we spoke to a number of sellers i know one person somebody i went to college with he didn't want to reveal how much he makes a year but I think the market for this is becoming uh, even wider and more varied. As we mentioned, people over the age of 45 and women now kind of dipping their toe into this and becoming the growth drivers. So I think eBay is just trying to get on to something that might be a rocket ship that could take off. Because as we can see, consumer discretionary spending during the pandemic, that's been the biggest growth driver on the S&P. And it's also been a big growth driver, as you can see, for sneakers. These aren't things that people need. These are things that people want. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it depends on your point of view. Say, I need them, Frank. Uh, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Frank Holland with the thank latest you. for us. Meanwhile, the iPhone super cycle, is it on? That's coming up next, plus a contrarian call on a Wall Street favorite and box office bust. All that and more in today's Rapid Fire. The Exchange will be back in two.
welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Phil LeBeau, Seema Modi, and Dom Chu. And we begin today with the hottest model on the lot right now, if you can find it. A used, full-size pickup truck, like a Chevy Silverado or a Ford F-Series, is selling at a huge premium compared to before the pandemic. Ford pickup trucks have also become the number one most stolen car in America, surpassing Honda. But the shares of Ford are still down 17% this year, Phil. Why isn't this stock anywhere near as hot as its trucks seem to be? Because when you look at Ford, the stock, you are betting on not just the F-Series sales, new F-Series sales, but also the rest of the portfolio. They've had some issues as they've been trying to turn around the business in China, which is doing better, and they have big exposure in Europe. So you're looking at a far different animal than if you were strictly looking at what's happening with the used pickup truck market, which is on fire right now for a number of reasons. One, you had the new plants shut down for about six weeks in March and April, so people who wanted a pickup couldn't get one then. And then you have COVID-19 having a lot of people saying, you know what, I want to drive now. I don't want to be a part of mass transportation or I don't want to do car sharing. I want my own vehicle. And as a result, look at those pickup truck prices. This is the wholesale price, by the way. It's now up more than $5,000 compared to February. That is a staggering jump. And we talked with one dealer in Kansas City. He's had people coming from across the country. One buyer from Spokane, Washington, came to his dealership because he had the model that he was looking for. Dom, what do you make of it? I make of it like pickup trucks have been so popular in America for decades at this point now, and this kind of COVID acceleration has just done that. It's really kind of picked up these trends. So there are a lot of folks out there who just like the pickup truck because it allows them a lot of flexibility to to do all kinds of things. And especially if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a small business owner, let's say you're a restaurant owner or a small shopkeeper, those pickup trucks are kind of part and parcel to what you do in terms of getting your stuff around as a small business owner. So yes, I can definitely see why. I thought the curious point was yours, Kelly, the the idea that it is now such a popular vehicle (laughs) that it is now the most stolen, not just because, you know, people want that truck, but because the parts are so in demand right now. So, yeah, the Ford F-150, obviously a very, very big deal in terms of most stolen vehicles out there. Yeah. If you've got one, lock it up. That's your advice and rapid fire today. All right. I would say this this love affair. Uh, with pickup trucks is not confined to the U.S. You're seeing strong demand even in China, India, Philippines, where you're starting to see construction activity pick up as those economies try to try to rebound here. Yeah. That surprises me. That definitely surprises me. I can see a little bit, but, you know, they, anyway, that I wouldn't have thought pickup trucks in China. Uh, but let's stick with pre-orders for Apple's new iPhone 12 now, shall we? A top Apple analyst says that Apple sold up to 2 million iPhone 12 units in the first 24 hours of pre-orders versus just 800,000 for the iPhone 11 last year. Sounds like an amazing increase, but that was just day one. For the weekend as a whole, Ming-Chi Kuo thinks Apple actually sold 3 million fewer phones than it did last year. Seema, what's going on here? Well, strong reception for the iPhone just weeks ahead of the holiday season where we're trying to understand, Kelly, how the consumer is going to spend their money during this pandemic. I also think this reflects just how higher income households have not been affected by, by the pandemic as others and therefore are willing to uh, shell out 600 to $1,000 for this new iPhone. Dom? So I, I think that it's kind of curious only because those themes resonate with the internal conflict I had last year. And, and, and kind of viewers of Rapid Fire know that last year I struggled with the idea of buying an iPhone 11 
Ultimately, I did because of the camera. I knew that a 5G model was going to come out this year, but I pulled the trigger anyway. That also means that this year I'm likely not as able to go jump out and buy that new iPhone 12 because of the 5G. I'm buyer's remorse? Well, it's not buyer's <laughs> remorse. I would say this. I, I don't know how much 5G capacity or bandwidth there is out there. It was kind of like 4K UHD TVs. Remember when they first came out? It's great <laughs> if you had one, but there's not a lot of content they put out for it back then. So I'm wondering, if you, if, even if you had a 5G phone, how much are you really able to capitalize on that 5G, depending on where you live in America right now? Yeah, by the way, this analyst did say the wait times for shipments are, I think he said, approaching now about five days or so, which indicates there is a decent amount of demand relative to supply. So it seems like consumers are more excited, uh, certainly than Wall Street was when the thing first debuted last week. Uh, but let's move on. And we just were talking about Ford's prospects, okay? The share price down 17% this year. Let's talk about GM. Is it deal or no deal when it comes to GM and Nikola? JP Morgan thinks the two are still likely to enter into a strategic partnership by December 3rd. Today they're saying Nikola needs access to GM's supply chain and engineering resources, while GM needs to realize a return on its billions of dollars of investment in hydrogen fuel cells. Now this also comes to Adam Jodis over at Morgan Stanley, says he thinks electric vehicles, guys, will be a third of all vehicles sold worldwide in 2030. So Phil, obviously GM wants a big piece of this market, but again, the fact that they're willing to bet on Nikola with all the questions that have been raised on it, does that tell you it's desperation here? No, I don't know if it says desperation. Look, they made the deal and you could argue this has not been good in terms of their reputation for what type of due diligence was done before striking this deal. If they make it, this is not going to be a huge addition to the bottom line. Remember, they're not, they're not putting out any money here. This is a case where if it falls apart, GM's not out anything aside from, again, the reputational hit that they've taken. So do I think that Nikola and GM can finally work out some type of an arrangement? Yeah, probably. Um, do I think it's going to move the needle? No, not right away it won't. And in terms of electric vehicles, I think the focus for General Motors right now, it's the new Hummer. The Hummer electric pickup truck, which they're going to be <laughs> unveiling later this week, I mean, that is the beginning of them saying, we are bringing our A-game, or what we believe is the A-game, to the fight against Tesla. And that's really what people are going to be focused on when it comes to EVs and GM. Seema, are the Chinese going to line up for the Hummer electric pickup truck? Oh, I don't know. I think in those type of markets, they typically go for smaller vehicles, although the pickup seems to be an exception. Uh, we'll have to see. I just wonder, given the drama surrounding Nikola, uh, how much longer GM... Uh, holds on to this partnership. I guess we'll learn more on December 3rd. But then I look back at this JP Morgan note, which highlights the amount of money that GM has put towards hydrogen fuel cells, about $2.5 or more, I believe, uh, Phil, you, you, would, you would know better yep. here. But the fact that they've put so much money into this technology, they need to find ways to test it in these it's all passenger about scale, vehicles. Seema. So therefore, it's all they, about scale. So then how much yeah. longer, how much is GM willing to withstand uh, this, you know, whatever, whatever's happening with Nikola? Uh, I guess it really comes back to that investment. It's put in fuel cells. And, it, and, and that's really what the focus of this is all about. What, what can they do with the hydrogen technology? And it still may work out for General Motors. Uh, a lot of people wanted to focus on the Badger electric pickup truck. That's ridiculous. I mean, that is a small deal in the overall landscape, but it got a lot of attention from the former chairman and the founder, Trevor Milton. He was always about the Badger electric pickup. Well, that's really not what this agreement is all about. It's a small part of it. All right. Well, finally, 
we will turn to a bust at the box office. This weekend's number one movie brought in less than $4 million in North America, guys. This time last year, Disney's Maleficent brought in 10 times that amount. Again, $3.7 million is what Liam Neeson's Honest Thief took home in the top spot. And now China has officially become the world's biggest box office this year, with the gap expected to widen as we head into the holiday season. The movie theater stocks are up today. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said most of the state's movie theaters can reopen except for those in New York City. And remember, last week in a filing with the SEC, AMC said its attendance levels are down 76% from last year. So, Dom, I think this all puts into context that even this, you know, good news you could call it, although not having Manhattan is still a big blow for the movie theater industry, pales in comparison with what they've potentially lost here. And the, I just think about this as the more beholden Hollywood gets to box office dollars in places like China, the more beholden their content will too, right? I, I, so there were two big things that kind of resonated through my mind as I was kind of going through that story. First of all, when it comes to the direct story about the movie size and the movie industry, we, we know that it's been tough for movie theaters and, and even the studios that are kind of releasing these flicks because of COVID-19, the lockdowns, people's comfort level with that. So it doesn't surprise me that the U.S. market here is a little bit more I guess slowed down in terms of the way that they are going to adopt things. The other thing I thought about was this is just another kind of microcosm, another uh, another battle on that front between the kind of the, between China and the U.S. is basically what it comes down to. It doesn't matter if it's artificial intelligence or supercomputing or anything else. You're talking about the world's two biggest economies. China faster growing than the U.S. right now. This is going to be the battle that plays out over the next several decades. In the movie side of things. We already knew that they were going to be big. I just need the U.S. to feel like it can play catch up if the economy can get going. But remember, China is in the position it's in right now because it was able to command and conquer its people into not doing anything for a certain amount of time. Their COVID cases down. Ours are, are ticking higher. That's going to be the big story there. Yeah. I mean, in SEMA last week at Milken, um, a couple of, of industry exec executives on the studio side were asked if they would ever be interested in buying the movie theaters. And they kind of laughed off the idea and said, you know, no way. So the, these stocks, I mean, AMC has already told us about its concerns about its cash flow this year. This is existential. Yeah, it, it truly is. And it kind of reminds me of the conversations that are happening in the hotel sector where you ask a hotel brand like Marriott and Hilton, are you willing to buy some of the distressed hotel properties? Uh, and they would also potentially laugh at, at that question as well. And listen, I think the theaters can learn a lot from the travel industry, whether you're a restaurant, a cruise line or a hotel, uh, making consumers feel comfortable walking into a confined space, an indoor space. Um, and how to make how to make that work is, is still the big question. You know, what kind of HIPAA filters are you using? What uh, what capacity do you operate in? I think you really need to figure that out before you sort of open your doors to Americans. Yeah, I thought it was encouraging that airline study that said, it's, you know, COVID's not really spreading on the airlines so they haven't seen it yet. You'd think maybe a similar thing for movie theaters could go a long way right now if, if, if it's true. Guys, we'll leave it there. Thank you all today. We really appreciate it. Phil Lebeau, Seema Modi, and Dom Chu. Coming up, stimulus is still stalled and could be until next year, according to one economist who has what his late January deal would mean for markets in the economy. We're back in a couple.
Welcome back to The Exchange. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is issuing a 48-hour deadline on stimulus negotiations if they want to pass a bill before the election. This comes as Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says the Senate will vote on a narrow $500 billion package this week. Pelosi expected to continue talks with the Treasury Secretary this afternoon. Our next guest says forget 48 hours or even 48 days. Nothing will get done till after the inauguration. Ian Shepardson is chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. Uh, Ian, how, I mean, by late January, is there, uh, how much impetus is there to get a deal done by that point? I mean, I guess if it feels that urgent by then, it will in some ways be too late. Or, or tell me about your thinking here. Well, my thinking is that Mitch McConnell doesn't want to do a big deal because he can't get it past some members of his caucus and he doesn't want to split his caucus to do a deal that the president wants because I suspect that McConnell thinks the president is toast. So why would McConnell spend his political capital doing a deal which is just going to get him in trouble with his members in the next Congress, whether McConnell is the minority leader or the majority leader? So I think that he offers this 500 billion bill which the Democrats won't take. So nothing gets done. Then after the election, the lame duck session, I think nothing gets done. So we're looking at the new Congress in January. Now, my guess, well, my guess just because that's what the polls say, is that it'll be a Democrat Senate, just, and a Democrat in the White House. So then we've got all three uh, branches of government working together, and that means we can have a bill ready for Biden's signature when he's president in late January, and then the money can start to flow in February. So that's four months from now, which is a long time when the economy is stuttering along yeah. as it is right now, and the virus numbers are shooting higher again. But I think it's the most likely outcome at this point. So, Ian, we spoke about at the top of the hour about markets, and uh, one of my guests said they don't think they're pricing in a Biden win at all because they're kind of burned by what happened in 2016. What happens if the polls are wrong again and uh, either Trump wins a re-election or the Republicans keep the Senate? What, what would those scenarios tell you about what that next round of relief would look like? Yeah, well, the next relief would be a lot smaller under those scenarios because the Democrats have got a much more aggressive plan they, uh, they want to offer much more support to state and local government, and they want to reinstate the enhanced unemployment benefits that were uh, ended in, on July 31st, and they want to re-up the Paycheck Protection Program as well. So there's a lot of stuff that they would do that I think Republicans probably wouldn't do. But I've got to say, I find it very strange that markets, or some market participants anyway, are so skeptical about the polling because, yeah, the polls were a bit wrong in 2016, but not very wrong. Uh, Biden is way, way further ahead than, than Hillary ever was. He's going in the right direction. His favorability readings are much higher. And of course, after 2016, all the polling companies changed their methodology to account for the people that they'd missed in 2016. And in the midterms in 2018, they got it dead right. So, you know, I think it is, it's, it's perverse at this point to assume anything other than a Biden presidency. Whether it's perverse to assume anything other than a, a, a Democratic Senate, that's different because the margin there is a lot finer. Uh, most yeah. of the models suggest that the Democrats, if they do take the Senate, will only have 51 or 52 seats. So it's possible you end up with a Biden presidency and a Republican Senate, in which case is way less stimulus. Now, that to me is a much more alarming scenario for stock markets than a Democratic sweep, which is not the way that most people in markets usually think, but I think under these circumstances, it's probably the yeah. right way to look at it. Well, that gives us a, kind of something to keep in mind as we're watching those results come in. Ian, appreciate it very much today. Thank you, sir. Ian Shepardson on the outlook for the economy. Still ahead, Hawaii has reopened to travelers after COVID decimated its economy, but getting in still isn't easy. Jane Wells is in Kona, Hawaii for us with that story. Jane? 
Hey, Kelly, yeah, there's a lot of stuff you got to do ahead of time. You got to sign up on a state website, get a QR code, take a test, but not just any test has to be at the right place. Hawaii hopes you find it worth it to return to paradise. And we come back. Aloha, mainland. Welcome back. Hawaii has reopened to tourists after being closed to COVID, but there are a lot of hoops. Hula hoops? Travelers have to jump through to start their vacations. Jane Wells is in Kona with her experience so far. Jane? Hey, Kelly. Hawaii has been very reluctant to reopen despite a 98% drop in tourism, a 12.5% unemployment rate, and a $2.3 billion budget deficit. That's about 20% or 15% of the 2020 budget. But after many delays and a lot of debate, uh, mainlanders are now allowed in without the need to quarantine in their rooms for 14 days if they have proof of a negative COVID test within 72 hours of arriving. That test has to be a Hawaii-approved test from a Hawaii-approved partner on the mainland, and you pay for that out of pocket. Though the airports were so overwhelmed here at first, they started accepting test results from non-recognized partners. That ends today. Here on the big island where I am, arrivals are subject to a second test at the airport, a rapid antigen test, and you cannot leave the airport till you get your result, but at least it's free. Some airlines like United set up testing sites in certain departure cities on the mainland like San Francisco. Hawaiian Airlines, the only airline planning a test site in Los Angeles, and at last word, that is still not up and running. Believe me, I know. Bottom line, it's been a little rocky, but getting better. And if you do make it here, it is not crowded, though some hotels have not reopened yet. The Royal Kona has reopened. It's only at about 10% capacity. But Marriott has not opened the Mauna Kea. That's not till November 1st. And on Maui, uh, Kelly, the Four Seasons is not reopening until November 20th in time for Thanksgiving, unless, of course, the state shuts down by then. Back to you. Jane, you know, as I listen to the way that so much rides on these COVID tests, especially like you said, you're going to get that rapid test when you land. But we've seen pro sports teams. We've seen the White House. We've seen everybody get false positives and false negatives from these tests. And I just think, what if you got there and your test came back positive, but you're negative? Or what if you got to go because your test was negative and you're positive, you know? Well, that, believe me, the mayor of Hawaii Island, this is why of all the islands, the big island has been the least open to reopening. And I have to tell you, we did not get our test results from the mainland, our COVID, until we were in the air. So we were sweating it. And then we took the antigen test. If you, if you fail the antigen test, you have to stay and get another free PCR test and quarantine. And you can't rent a car without a negative test result and and that's on your qr code here it's it's a lot but they so far you know we won't know for another week if there's a huge spike because of tourists coming back most of the problem in hawaii has been inner island travel and people in small gatherings right so jane if they don't get this right i mean do they shut back down or at this point does it have to just be we're, we're going for it we can't afford to be closed any longer well I think it'll be island by island. And I think uh, on Oahu, the business pressure is great to remain open. Again, a 98% plunge in tourism. Uh, on this island, the big island, I don't think, from my experience, they'd have much problem at all shutting back down. And I was a little concerned people might be resistant. The locals might be resistant to us coming back. But fortunately, Kona has the nicest people in the world. And we have been treated uh, great and with, um, with great appreciation that we're back. 
Yeah, well, I'm sure that they appreciate the travelers like they never did before. And it's interesting how we're even highlighting Hawaii as this exotic destination to be in. Like, it's, you know, we haven't seen that in a number of years either. Jane, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Jane Wells for us on the exchange today. Stick around for Power Lunch. We get the stocks that are poised to gain an extra life from the video game boom. I'll join known gamer Tyler Matheson for more after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.